Right, well, First Peter chapter 2, we're going through Peter's first letter. And uh, as we mentioned in the previous lessons, Peter focuses a lot on suffering in this letter. And he says, don't be surprised, Christians, if we're find, you find yourself suffering in this life, going through various trials. And he goes on through several different types of suffering that we face in this life. And he points to the example of Jesus. We're following his life and that his life consisted of suffering and it was followed by glory uh, later on. So we should, if we're following him, we should expect the same thing in this life. And then Peter was describing, where we left off, Peter was describing the Christians, what the church is like, and he's using language from the story of the Exodus 1,400 years earlier. He goes back to the language that's used in Exodus 19 and in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Peter says, like the Israelites of old were supposed to be, he says that we are called to be, same language, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people, a people called out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this is all the language and the imagery of the the Jews in the Exodus. So he continues using similar imagery here. We're going to start reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. First Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evil, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter is continuing the imagery of the Exodus, and he says that the picture here is that we are wandering through a world that is not our home, and we are we are sojourners, we're pilgrims, we're aliens, we're strangers on this on this mysterious journey that we're on, passing through the world. So the idea is that the world is not our home. That uh, as the old song goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That the home, our homeland is outside of this world. It is beyond this world. So we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that this world is our home. And our job is to set up as nice and comfortable a little nest here as we possibly can. Because this, we're, we're just passing through here. We're aliens and strangers in this world. And Peter's description of the life as strangers as aliens, as people who are in a country that really isn't their native country, reminds me of an early, one of the earliest Christian writings, perhaps. It's a, a le- called uh, a, a, a letter to Diognetus, or sometimes it's called a letter t- from Methetes to Diognetus, but Methetes isn't a name. It just means, it's a Greek word for disciple. So it's some random disciple, we don't know what his name was, who's writing to someone named Diognetus, and this could have been as early as 125 AD, which would be pretty early, or as late as, as perhaps 200. So somewhere in that time frame, but a fairly early writing. So, so he's describing what the Christians are like, and it reminds me so much of what Peter is saying here. I want to read from that. He says, uh, For the Christians are distinguished from other men neither by country, 
nor language, nor customs which they observe. For they neither inhabit cities of their own, nor employ a peculiar form of speech, nor lead a life marked by out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by any speculation or deliberation or, or inquisitiveness of men, nor do they, like some, proclaim themselves the advocates of any merely human doctrines. But inhabiting Greek as well as barbarian cities, according to the lot of each of them, has been determined, and following the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct, they display to us the wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, they do, they do all the other things, they beget children, but they don't destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They are lacking in all things and yet abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor they are glorified. They are evil spoken of, yet they are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor, and they do good. That they are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if enlivened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners. They're persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. So it's a wonderful, it's a beautiful description of an early description of the Christians, which I think if we're if we're following the teachings of Jesus, it should be true today just as well. That's from Epistle. Uh, to Diognetus, chapter 5, and Antonicene Fathers, volume 1, pages 26 and 27. The things that struck me in this description of the Christians, uh, it says that they dwell in their own countries merely as sojourners. They're, they're aliens, they're just passing through. Uh, very similar to the language that's used by Peter. And uh, it says, in one sense... It's like they're strangers in, the, in their own native lands. They feel like they don't belong there. But in another sense, they feel like they belong in all the other countries. They feel like they belong anywhere. They're citizens of the world. Their nationality isn't in the United States or in China or in Mexico or any other country. They are, they're citizens of the kingdom of God and they're citizens of the whole world. So their nationality has nothing to do with political boundaries or their race or where they were born or where they grew up, anything like that their identity. And uh, that superficially, they look, act, and eat just like all the people in the, in the country where they are. They blend in. So to look at them superficially, you can't tell who the Christians are versus everybody else. All right? There's nothing physically that sticks out about them. But they're different. They live a different way of life. 
wherever in whatever land that they happen to live in. And then also, they're hated by everybody, but no one can explain exactly why. No one can give a good reason why you're hating these people who are nice to everybody and everything else. But he says, no matter where they go, the Jews can't stand them, and the Greeks, which is basically everybody who's not Jewish, they can't stand them either. So they're hated by everybody. So this, this is the... This is the the description of, of the Christians and, and, and that world. So I, I want to share that. That helped me to, to connect with what Peter is talking about, about being sojourners and pilgrims or aliens and strangers in this world. That that's that's, that's the, the, the image that uh, Peter holds out of what we're supposed to be living like. I want to continue. Let's continue. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 3 to 17. I'm sorry, 13 to 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it is the king as supreme or to governors as those who were sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So let's, let's stop right there and, and explore this a little bit. So he starts off with a therefore. Now the therefore is, Peter, Peter is explaining this is the... This is the first, not the only reason, but this is the first reason that you need to obey the governing authorities in whatever land that you're in. He says the first reason, tying back to what he had just said before that, is so that the Gentiles, the unbelievers, who are speaking evil about you, will be impacted when they see your lives. You're submissive to the government. You're not a rebellious people. And so that they will turn and ultimately glorify God on the day of visitation, on, on, the, on the last day. So he's saying that so, that so that you can open the minds of the Gentiles who are criticizing you and bad-mouthing you, that, that actually you are, you are God's people. You're, you're doing good by the good lives that you leave. So this is, this is to silence, in, in Peter's words, the ignorant talk of foolish people by the way that you're living here. And he also says, in reality, you are free people. All right? But nevertheless, rather than exercising your liberty to do whatever you feel like doing, you are going to voluntarily live. You're going to choose to live of your own choice as bondservants of God. So he says, you're, you've been free, but you're making yourselves servants of God. And that's the way... You need to live. So he's talking about uh, how the Christians need to live. And the focus uh, right after this is on submitting to the governing authority, submitting to the government. And this, he says, the direction includes, he says, submitting to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, specifically to the kings as the supreme authority and governors who act as his agents sent by the king to punish the wicked and praise those who do good. So you say you need to submit to the governing authorities. Now, we don't have kings today. We'll have uh, presidents, uh, chairmen. Uh, we'll have uh, other other types of, of authority in the government. We do have governors. Um, 
And, and this passage here where Peter is talking about the Christians need to submit to the governing authorities. Now keep in mind, Peter was killed by the Roman government. Jesus was killed by the Roman government. Paul was killed by the Roman government. And he's saying, submit yourself to the governing authorities. You're not going to be, don't be rebellious people. Uh, Paul talks about the same thing in Romans chapter 13. So I want to, there's some similarities and some differences there. Uh, difference, similarities in what he's saying, differences in, in the reason he's backing it up. So let's, let's ter- turn to Romans chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 7. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. This is Paul writing. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience's sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom his taxes are due, customs to whom his customs are due, Fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So this is, uh, Paul makes some similar points to Peter, uh, but he adds some things here too. He makes some some pretty strong statements that I remember years ago when I first studied the Bible, I really struggled with this chapter of the Bible, <laughs> mightily, all right? He says, the governing authorities are appointed by God. Okay. Uh, um, you know, at the time I read this, I wasn't too excited about the governing authorities. I didn't like the, 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 the president and the people who were in charge of the United States. And he says the governing authorities are appointed by God. And at the time that he's writing, he's talking about the, the Roman emperors who were incredibly corrupt leaders. They're morally corrupt. They're, they're financially corrupt. Uh, they're, they're doing all kinds of bad things. But he says the governing authorities are God's ministers and that resisting the governing authorities is therefore resisting God. So this is, I mean, this is, this is, these are some rather strong statements that he's making here, which, if I think about this, uh, caused caused me to, to wrestle and struggle on the inside. He said the governing authorities punish those who do evil, and therefore we need to pay our taxes to support them and be subject to them. And I think, as I've mentioned in the past. At the time that I first read this, seriously, I was a tax resistor in the United States. I wasn't paying any taxes, and I thought, wow, if this is true, then I need to turn myself into the government and pay my back taxes, which, which I, I ended up doing. I said, if I'm going to become a Christian, I, I can't live this way any longer. So, uh, And, and he, he makes a principle here. He says, we have to render to everyone what they are due. So they say, well, what, what do you owe everybody here? So he says, you owe taxes to whom taxes are due. You owe customs to whom customs are due. Fear to whom fear is due. And honor to whom honor is due. So this is, you give everyone 
what they are entitled to. You pay taxes to whom taxes are due. And this was in, in Matthew 22, the Jewish, uh, the Jewish Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus into saying you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. And he wouldn't say that. He said, show me a denarius, show me a coin. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God. So he says, basically Paul's saying the same thing. You give everyone what they are entitled to, what they are owed. That's exactly what Jesus said. So you pay taxes to whom taxes are due. You pay customs to whom customs are due. What's a custom? A custom is like you're traveling down a toll road in Massachusetts, the Mass Pike, and you know, you have your transponder. You have to, you have to, you you pay automatically through your counter. The old days, you have to, to to reach in and throw some quarters in the bucket or whatever, to to pay the uh, the tolls. Um, I think another a recent painful example was I'm working on my the side on my house. I'm redoing siding, and so we're buying boxes and boxes and boxes of wooden shingles. And the best wooden shingles are made in Canada. President Trump was having a battle with the Canadians over tariffs. And so uh, to, to uh, uh, because they can produce lumber cheaper in Canada than they can in, let's say, in Maine. So so President Trump decided we'll show those Canadians we'll put a 20 percent charge on any imported wood from Canada. So what that, what that means is I pay a 20 percent tax. The Canadians don't pay. I pay to buy Canadian wood to put on the side of my house. I pay a 20 percent tax. So. That means if I'm buying $5,000 of shingles, which is not as much as you think, okay, in terms of number, number that it covers, I have to pay $1,000 of taxes to the government. I have to pay customs to the U.S. government. So you pay taxes to whom you have to pay taxes. You pay customs to whom you pay customs. Well, that's what I have to do. And then he says, you fear to whom fear is due. So uh, uh, Paul says, uh, if we do evil, we should be afraid of the governing authorities. Peter says we should only fear God. He says, fear God, honor the king. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. So Peter says, you, you, you fear God, you honor the king. He doesn't say you fear the king. Paul says, if you're doing evil, you fear the king. So the principle is the Christians are doing good. So the only one we have to be afraid about is God. All right. Uh, and then honor to whom honor is due. And then that's what Peter says. We should love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we treat the government with honor. We treat our parents, our mother and father, with honor, as it says uh, in, in both the New Testament and the Old Testament. So with these concepts laid out here about the government, I want to run a few scenarios by you. Okay, what would you do based on the Bible here? Scenario number one. Okay, we have... Uh, scenario number one is let's roll back the clock a little bit to 1775 or 1776. You're right here in Massachusetts. This is the, the this is ground zero for the American Revolution. Right here, we're not far from Lexington and Concord, and uh, you know the colonials are rebelling against taxation and the rule of the king, uh, who's over in England. And imagine you're living here and you're a Christian, just sitting here reading your Bible and trying to figure out what to do. And actually, we have in our room here, we have four people at least who are, who are uh, uh, descended from families that uh, had a role in the revolution that took place here and, and on, on the side of the rebels, all right? So, 
So uh, David and I uh, kind of co-lead the group here. David's last name is Adams, A-D-A-M-S, <laughs> as in Samuel Adams, the ultimate, the ultimate revolutionary was Sam Adams. He was he was the mastermind, all right. And then you got John Adams, who ended up being the second president. So you have the Adamses. We've got we got some. We have the, the family Adams here in our, in our group. So uh, even though if they're not direct lineal descendants from Sam or John. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that they are, but they're definitely cousins, or they're related in some way. David's nodding his head. So, we also have another family here. My 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 son William and I were we're, we're descended from the Pikes, uh, the Pike uh, clan. And uh, my brother was doing some research into our family history, and he says, you know, we're all. He, so he goes back. He went back several generations. Just recently sent it to me. He said, you know, we're descended from Jeremiah Pike. And we've got all these people who fought in the Revolutionary War who lived right around this area. I grew up in New Jersey, but my the Pike relatives came from right around here. They lived in Reading, Ashland, Framingham. In fact, Alice and I recently went over. We were, we were at a doctor's appointment in Framingham, and there's a house there that, that was built by, uh, I think, Jeremiah Pike from this in the late 1600s, and they had people from the same family living in it for eight generations. So... Uh, but I, you know, learn, learning a little bit about the story, they say, oh, there, yeah, there used to be a barn in the back, and that's where the oxen were who brought, they hid the oxen who brought the cannons down from Fort Ticonderoga into Boston, lined them up in Dorchester, and scared the British into evacuating the city. And I had, and, you know, another, another pike was, uh, it was, was killed by a cannonball uh, uh, charging up or down uh, Bunker Hill in the Battle of Bunker Hill. So, I had relatives who were uh, just like David and I were both from families that are up to their eyeballs in <laughs> revolutionary activity trying to overthrow the king. So, um, you know, same thing with Elizabeth and, and uh, my son Will here. Um, so imagine you're living at that point in time and people are, the Revolutionary War is beginning and July 4, 1776 is uh, my favorite, used to be my favorite holiday, my favorite American holiday was uh, Independence Day. So that's when the, uh, the, the Declaration of Independence was signed. Now, think, I, want, I want to read from the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence. And based on what we just read from Peter and Paul, okay, can you buy into this or not? Think about this. Here's what it says. Introduction to the Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4th, 1776, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So far, so good. Okay, now listen to this. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. 
Okay. That whatever any, whenever any form becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and institute new government laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and habit and, and, uh, uh, and happiness. Then skipping a little further down, it talks about uh, uh, the, the abuses that are charged against the king. And it says, therefore, it's the right and the duty of the people to throw off such government because they've already established that the, uh, the governments derive their just power from the consent of the governed. Okay, so it says, therefore, uh, therefore, if they're treating us badly, we have the right to overthrow the government. Basically, that's what they're saying now. So, question, your friends and relatives here are getting all excited about this new document, the rights of man, that we have liberty. And, uh, you know, uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, these are inalienable rights. No one, no government has the right to take them away from us. The government only uh, gets its authority from the right of the government, and we don't want the king over us, so we have a right to overthrow the king, take up arms, and revolt. So question, your friends and relatives are, are starting to get swept up in the revolutionary fervor. What do you do? You read the stirring words of the Declaration. And then you open up and read 1 Peter and Romans and Romans chapter 13. What are you going to do? What do you do? Where is your allegiance, really, in the end? Okay, so that's first question. Let me, let me throw another first scenario. Another scenario. You're going to have to answer that one yourself. And scenario number two. Scenario number two. You're in the state of Virginia. The year is 1860. All right. You're a citizen of Virginia. Your state, when it's your state signed on to the U.S. Constitution, they said we'll join the the the, the uh, will join in with the other states. We'll sign the Constitution, provided we have the right to, to opt out if later on we decide this is not working out too well. Okay, so they signed. There's a condition that they put in there when they ratified the Constitution. Okay, and you're living in Virginia, you know, you don't own slaves, you don't have any, any particular concern about that. The vast majority of people who lived in Virginia were not slave owners, just a few. And it said your, your state recently decided for a number of reasons, slavery was not the only one, that, uh, uh, that they wanted to leave the Union. It wasn't working out so well. And it tried peacefully to work out a deal with the central government to get out. That didn't work out. The government wouldn't tolerate that. A war ensued where the central government, the United States, is trying to force Virginia back into the country. So you're a citizen of Virginia. Okay, Virginia has left the Union and joined in with the Confederacy. But the United States is saying, no, no, we have authority over you. What, where do you, what do you do in that, in that situation? You've got two, two competing governments, both of which claim that you're under them. What do you do? Okay, who do you pay your taxes to? Whose laws do you follow? And I'm not setting aside the whole question about uh, uh, fighting in a war one way or the other. But uh, what do you do in a situation like that where it's it's where there are competing claims of governments? Other scenarios, if we want to look throughout history, and and 
these are both scenarios that are actually in, in countries that are fairly friendly to Christians, but there have been a lot of governments that have been hostile to Christians. The Roman Empire in the beginning was very hostile to Christians. Uh, Russia under communism was very hostile. Uh, and uh, or, or think about how, how conscientious Christians fire, fared in Germany under Nazi rule or in Iran today or some other countries, other parts of the world today. You know, what would you do if you're out of the United States and in another situation or another time where Christians are being badly treated and they're, they're, uh, you have the leaders of the government are involved in mass murder, they're wicked leaders, they're corrupt, they're liars, they're thieves, they're stealing from the people, as is have been most of the governments throughout history, honestly. So what do you do? Now let me throw one more scenario on you. Okay, Today is, uh, what, January the 3rd? For those who've been paying attention to the news in the United States, uh, three days from now is January 6th. And somebody, somebody say, well, what's, what's the big deal January 6th? January 6th is when, in this country, we just had an election recently, and um, January 6th, the electors are gathering, and or the, the electors, the Congress is gathering to, to count the votes of the electors. And in seven of the states, they sent in two slates of electors, from competing sides. And so, <clears throat> depending on which electors you count, you count one group of electors, one guy wins, you count a different group, the other guy wins. This is not the first time this has happened in U.S. history. Things like this have happened in the past, not necessarily involving this many states. So, And there's members of Congress have already, dozens of members of Congress have already come forward and saying and said, this election was fraudulent, stolen, corrupt, and, and, and we're going to throw out the results of the election. Um, and uh, so here's the backdrop. And, you know, some depends on which news, news you're listening to, uh, to what extent you're clued in on what's going on here. Uh, there is a movement to have a million people showing up in Washington, D.C. Um, uh, on the 6th of January, the time when these ballots are supposed to be counted and this and this is taking place. Um, what's going to happen three days from now, I have no idea, but things could get crazy in this country. We could see widespread violence from either the right or the left. We could see the end of democracy and free elections in this country. It's been a nice ride for 200-something years. This may be the end of it. We just don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. It could be martial law temporary suspension of the Constitution in an emergency. Uh, there could be a president is installed that a large part of the country believes is illegitimate. Um, we could find ourselves with highly corrupt top government leadership, a breakup of the United States, uh, loss of sovereignty of the U.S., or even loss of basic rights that we've always taken for granted in the First and Second Amendment in this country. All this is on the table. All this is on the table. There was a court case before the Supreme Court that got thrown out on the technicality of no standing. The head, the, the, it was put forward by Texas with 19 other states jumping on board. The head of the Republican Party in Texas said, <clears throat> when, when the case got thrown out, they said, look, if, if we can't bring our case to the Supreme Court, he said, maybe we need to form a new country where the states that actually do want to follow the Constitution can be part of that, and the ones that don't can be part of something else. So 
These are times I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. So what do we do in these situations? This is, this is, this is not some hypothetical scenario in the past. We're here. And we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I think we need to think about what Peter said, what Paul said, and the principles of how do Christians live and, and, and the situation that we're under right now. So what do we do in these various situations in light of what Peter and Paul taught? Well, I think there's, there's some basic principles. One is we need to honor the governing authorities regardless of how they got there. If they got in by a fair election... If they got in by stealing, if they got in by martial law, whoever the governing authority is are, we need to treat them with respect. Okay, the Caesars weren't elected by popular election. Generally, it's because they killed somebody and they had a plot and took over. That's how they that's how they got into office by generally corrupt means, including murder. So uh, and that's what that's a, you know that's the backdrop where Peter and Paul are writing these things. We have to struggle to see the government is established by God, regardless of who's in charge. Okay? This is a tough pill for, for, for almost everybody to swallow. Okay? As you, as, you, as you run some of these scenarios, that there's no government except that which is established by God. And we need to honor the king and the governor, regardless of who, who that is and, and, and where we are here. So, uh, so that's... Uh, <coughs> that's... Uh, that's one part of the story, but there's, I think there's a little more to it. So the, the question that comes to my mind is, say, okay, are there any limits on this? Because governments can do some pretty horrendous things. Are there any limits to which, to, to which we, can, we can put our, we, we can say, well, I, I'll obey the government to this point, but not, not to that point here. Uh, Tertullian, who's an early Christian writer in North Africa, Carthage, North Africa, he addressed this. And I want to listen to what he says and then go back and, and, and ask ourselves the question, okay, is what he's saying, does this actually line up with the Scripture? So let's first hear him out and then think about, does this line up with the rest of the, what, what it says in the Scriptures? Uh, so Tertullian is talking about this passage of, of, that Paul, Paul said in Romans 13. Uh, he said, No doubt the apostle admonishes the Romans to be subject to all power because there's no power but of God, and because the ruler does not carry the sword without reason and is the servant of God. Know also, he says, he is a revenger to execute wrath upon him who does evil. For he has also previously spoken such, for rulers are not a terror for good work, but for evil. Uh, will you then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and you shall have praise of it. Therefore, he is a minister of God to do good, but if you should do that which is evil, be afraid. So he's basically he's quoting back or paraphrasing Romans 13. Thus he bids you to be subject to the powers, not on an opportunity occurring for avoiding a martyrdom, but when he is making an appeal in behalf of the good life, under the view also of there being, as it were, assistance bestowed upon righteousness, as it were, handmaids of the divine court of justice, which even here pronounces sentence beforehand upon the guilty. Then he goes on also to show how he wishes you to be subject to the powers, bidding you to pay tribute to whom his tributes do, custom to whom custom, that is, the things which are Caesar's to Caesar's, and the things which are God's to God. But man is the property of God alone. Peter, no doubt, 
had likewise said, The king indeed must be honored, yet so that the king be honored only when he keeps to his own sphere. When he is far from assuming divine honors, because both father and mother will be loved along with God, not put on equality with him. Besides, one will not be permitted to love even life more than God. So he's saying, all right, Jesus, we, we, we submit, submit ourselves to the, the governing authorities, as Paul said, as Peter said, but there are some limits on this. He said, we're supposed to honor the king. We're also supposed to honor our parents. But... But there are limits. And uh, in Tertullian's day, the kind of limits that he's talking about were pretty obvious. Uh, he says, we have to honor the king. We also have to honor our parents. That's what, that's what it says in, 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 in the Bible, in the New Testament, the Old Testament. We honor our parents. We honor the king. But you don't honor your parents more than God. And you don't honor the king more than God. If, the, if your parents encroach on a command of God... You love your parents more. You love God more than your parents, so you don't you don't follow that. You respectfully uh, submit to God first in all things. Uh, in Tertullian's day, if someone said you have to worship the emperor or you have to bow down to to an idol or offer incense to an idol, if you have to kill someone else in a war and capital punishment, something that went against a command of God, of course, a Christian wouldn't do that, even if they're even if they they were somebody who's converted who was in the military already. You can't do things like that. So the idea is that there are there are limits that the, the government has uh, authority over a certain sphere, but there's there's a boundary to that sphere, and that's that is the that's the commands of God. I think also of the story in Daniel of Daniel's three friends who were told by the king they need to bow down to the golden image, and they said we're not we're not going to do that. That's a violation of a command of God that idolatry is completely uh, forbidden, and I don't care where we are in the world or, or who's in charge, we're just not going to do that. And if we die, we die, but, but, we're, but, but that's what we're going to do. So, and the same thing with, with, with Daniel, when in Daniel chapter 6, when an edict was passed that says no man for the next 30 days can pray to anyone except to the king, and then Daniel, just like every other day, opens his windows. He goes up and opens his windows, and he's praying facing Jerusalem three times a day like he always has. And he gets thrown into the, into the lion's den. It's a setup. So, you know, Daniel and his three fans, the idea is they were, they were submissive to the government. They're respectful of the government. But when the government says something that contradicts a command of God, then you follow God and just pay the consequences. So... Uh, I think also in Acts chapter 4, when the leaders tell Peter and John, you're filling Jerusalem with his teaching, stop doing this, you're causing trouble. Stop preaching, stop shedding, stop, stop sharing all this teaching about Jesus. And Peter and John responded in Acts, in Acts chapter 4, it says, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That's Acts 4, verses 18, 20. So, you, you, you know, you tell us. He's having a rhetorical question. He's not even answering. He says, you tell us. Are we supposed to obey you or God? So it's like they know they're supposed to, they're supposed to obey God. So, of course, they're not going to do this. They're not going to do it because, because they're putting God first. So um, 
I mean, let me let's let's explore this a little further. Let me give a total hypothetical situation. Let's say that there's a health emergency. Everybody's afraid of a virus in this country, okay? Uh, you know, and, and they say the Christians can't meet together. They said there will be no non-essential meetings, and meeting as a church is non-essential, so you can't meet together, okay? Um, what do you do? In that situation, this, I'm, I'm being, I'm just kidding around about hypothetical situations. This is where we are. It's going on right now. And it could be become more severe. There could be a more severe lockdown on a state level or a federal level in the future. So what do we do with that? Well, let's think about that as I'm reading Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25. Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is in the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, Daniel could have just said, hey, listen, God knows my heart. I'm just going to take a break from praying for the, <laughs> the next 30 days. Or the, the, three, the three men who got thrown into the fiery furnace could have said, you know, I'll, I'll bow down, but in my heart I'm going to be worshiping God. They wouldn't do that. They, they just Their attitude is, look, this is what God tells me to do. I'm going to do this. So, and Now, I'm not saying we need to be uh, disrespectful of the government, and um, but I don't. I'm not saying be disrespectful of the government. I'm saying we, we may we may need to find creative ways to obey the word of God without causing with causing as little as 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 little aggravation with the government as possible. But at the end of the day, we really have to we have to follow what God says in all things. I think that's the way it is. And and as Trillian would say. The government, you know, this is the sphere of government. The government has a legitimate sphere, and then there's a there's an area which is out of bounds for the government. And we, you know, and it's in Tertullian and 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 Peter and Paul and Daniel, they would call an out of bounds on the government once in a while. And sometimes we have to do that too to understand if something's a command of God versus versus uh, uh, that contradicts the government. Now. Let me, let me, I'm going to offer an opinion here. Think about this. All right. In my opinion, what it says in the Declaration of Independence <laughs> totally violates the Bible right there. The government gets its authority, its just authority from the consent of the government. That is not what the Bible says. That's totally not what the Bible says. All right? So that's wrong. And that's the foundation of, uh, under which the, the American Revolution took place is wrong. So I, if I was living back then, I would say, hey, Honor the king. The king happens to be on the other side of the ocean here, but I still have to honor the guy. I'm not going to be uh, causing a revolution and not paying my taxes and throwing the tea into the harbor and doing all that stuff. I couldn't do that if I'm, if I'm just following the Bible. All right? On the other hand, let me... Let me, let me let, so, so not to completely trash the United States and, and the form of government that we have, but I say that, 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 that contradicts what the Bible says. On the other hand, there's something in the U.S. government that I think does reflect something in Scripture, which is unusual, which is um, in, in the United States Constitution, after they passed the Constitution, the, the states got together and said, hey, you know, uh, we need a Bill of Rights here, too. So in, in, the, in the First Amendment to the Constitution, they said you have the freedom of speech, you have the freedom of religion, you have the freedom of assembly, things like this, you have, you have freedom to petition the government, you have, you have certain freedoms but it wasn't the government is giving you these rights. The way that the First Amendment is written is 
you have these rights. You have the right to freedom of religion. And the government has no right to encroach on that. Okay, so it's basically, it's putting the government behind a fence. It's not the government giving you a right. It's the, the government saying, we can't touch the right that you have to freedom practice freedom of religion. And I think it's very unusual. I don't know of any other country that has a constitution with a bill of rights that's that strong. We'll see how long it lasts. But, but that actually, I think, does reflect this idea that there is a sphere outside which government has no authority. And that, that includes freedom of religion. This is extended to us by God. It's recognized in the First Amendment of the Constitution. The First Amendment doesn't give us the right. The First Amendment ties the hands of the government saying, you can't, you can't interfere there. And, and a number of, of places where people have tried to shut down churches recently, in different parts of the country, they've had some extreme, you know, people have beaten, the, uh, beaten this back in court by saying, First Amendment, you have a right to do this. And the government has no business to say that churches are not essential. That's, that's out of bounds for them. That's out of their sphere of authority. So um, anyway, just, just some, some, uh, some, some thoughts on, on that. Um, let's see where we are in time. Um, I'm going to hold off what I was the next topic I was about to, I was, I was just about to dive into. I think that's probably a good place to stop in view of the time. I see some smiles and amens here. So... Uh, Anyway, this is, I want you to think, don't just, don't just take what I'm saying about this. I want you to think about it and process it. And this isn't just some theoretical, hypothetical thing. Because no matter where we are in the world, and no matter what happens in this country, these principles are timeless. And I think we need to have a proper understanding of what God wants us to do in relationship to the government. He doesn't want us to be rebellious people. Like, my nature is to be rebellious. He doesn't want to be, to be tax protesters or tax resistors, which I was. So I'm not looking down at anybody. Uh, but, but he also wants us to recognize that, that, that the commands of God always come before the commands of any government. So this is the kind of people that God wants us to be, people who are sojourners and strangers, who are members of a kingdom and who answer to God as the king, who voluntarily make ourselves as bondservants of God and will voluntarily give up some of our freedoms uh, to because, because this we're living the way that God wants us to and that hopefully others around us will see, even if they don't like they don't like us as Christians, that they'll see, well, these people, there's something good about them and maybe I need to pay attention to, to, uh, to what they do and what they believe. Amen. Thank you.